Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. This is Rich Schmidt. We're here with Kenny and Allison McMahon. It's August 3rd, 2023. We're at their new wine warehouse in McMinnville. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank you. Yeah, Uh, thanks for having us. First question is why wine? Uh, Yeah, so we have very different stories. My wine, why wine, is, um, so I studied biology as a bachelor at Santa Clara, and so I was living in the Bay Area after I graduated, and I was kind of trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life, and I had an interest in science, but wasn't really sold on any, like, one route yet. I knew I wanted to pursue higher education. I really liked, you know, learning and lab and research and Um, So I was wine tasting with some friends and family and like the more we did it, the more I realized I could apply my biology background to this and that would be a pretty cool way to make her career. So I started looking for programs where I could study wine. I found uh, the food science program at Washington State at the time, enology and viticulture was very closely tied in with food science. Um, And so I ended up studying sensory science of wine. and that was a pretty cool fit. So that's kind of how I ended up getting into the industry. Why wine for me is rooted in a memory. So wine's really more or less a, a vector for memories. And so Allison talked about sensory, which is driven by memories, all by the, the senses. Um, and I was 12 and traveling with my parents to Napa, California. It was during harvest. And we were up in the mountains, um, up on Howe Mountain. It was still foggy. It was like five in the morning. They got us up and our family friends were like, oh, we got a wine tasting, but it has to be 6 a.m. And so it was like the full, yeah, it was like the full deal. Um, Foggy, cold, crisp, but the buzzers of the, the humming of the forklifts beeping. And the tour guide was the winemaker and he said, you know, reach over the bins and grab yourself some grapes and, you know, bees are flying around and stuff. And I remember tasting them and they were just so like quenching and it was Chardonnay, um, probably Wenty for all I know. Um, but it just, it lasted in my mind as far as like this, this memory. And so that, that to me is why wine is like this vector is a memory found type of drink and kind of beverage. So. And it, it spawned into other things. Like we went down to the caves and sniffed and burned our noses on barrels fermenting. Like, so that led into it, like skipping a lot of steps. We can go into the linearity of how I got to wine, but yeah, that's the, the origin of of my wine journey. So Alice, let's go back to you for a moment. Talk about life before college. Where were you born and raised? And and what was the what what kind of preceded going to school? Uh, so I was born in California, but I moved back and forth between California and Washington a number of times, um, back and forth. And uh, so I guess I would call Washington home more so. Um, and yeah, I was always interested in science and I thought maybe healthcare was kind of the way that that would manifest. But when I started kind of sticking my big toe into all these different types of positions I could have, like a 
I could be a, I was an EMT on campus as a college student and I worked in the physical therapy uh, clinic on campus or I, I also worked in an optometry clinic. So I was trying out all these different kind of ways that I could do that and nothing really was that, it wasn't, didn't seem like it was 100% the right fit for me. And so that's why I was uh, so kind of in this place after our graduation where I was wondering, like, do I really want to commit to something that I'm not 100% sure about yet or do I want to keep look, looking? And that's when I really started thinking about wine and what I liked about the, the experiences I had when I was tasting around with my friend and her family was that, like, the community and how, like, just the experience you can create for someone and like Kenny said the memories that you can create um, with kind of wine as a part of that experience and so it felt like a really natural blend of like this people side of things and this experience side of things and the science mm -hmm. um, which I really liked so. Well you Kenny where were you born and raised and what was sort of like early after school? Yeah born and raised in Kentucky um, northern Kentucky so a lot all my family is still there. My, my parents and my sister are in Atlanta now. Um, and so meaning to be, we're planning our trip back soon, actually. And, but yeah, I grew, grew up in Kentucky, um, you know, running around the hills out, outside of Cincinnati, fishing in the woods, whatever. Um, went to school at a small college, Center College, in the middle of uh, center being at the time that's why they called it Center College it was the center of the state at the, the time um, very small like thousand students when I went there played played tennis for the team for a couple years um, realized you know I'm putting in a lot of work and effort and you know being six man on the team I like I didn't want to play anymore like I wanted to just do it for fun and focus on my school. And so in between years in college, I started, well, actually it was probably before college, I started doing internships. Um, so 16 when I first started driving, did an internship at a micro lab, started in the autoclave room and then doing count, cell counts. And it was for contract work for PNG. So PNG was huge in Cincinnati, still are. Um, and but I realized, like, I don't want to sit in a lab without windows and be there counting cells all the time. And there, there's a full circle. Kenny full was circle. just counting cells the other day. Yeah, full circle, <laughs> and which I love. Like, I, but you know, as a teenager, like, oh my gosh, what is the point here? Like, I didn't see the the end point of this, and um, ended up doing sort of similar to what Allison was doing in college, like gene splicing. Um, that was my junior year before senior year in college, which got me thinking about grad school. And I never, I never consider, I'm like, oh man, I'm probably gonna be marine biologist somewhere. And I don't know, like that, cause that interested me too. And, but then when I saw this gene splicing and how it related to food and we were, we were splicing a gene that changed soybeans to be red pig pigmented for salmon feed, for farm-raised salmon to reduce the pressures on the ocean. And um, I was like, wow, this is, this is super cool and has direct impact. And there's so much more in the food industry that I didn't even know. So this was in Nebraska and that was my first time moving away from home um, for quite some time. And I just meeting all the people and it was just so cool. So it got me thinking like, okay, I want to go to a big campus and 
um, apply. So I applied to the food science programs and VE specifically. Um, I did apply to University of Wisconsin Madison because the dairy science, they were huge cheese, and I thought it was kind of interesting. Um, so I applied to East Coast, West Coast because I wanted to move away. And Washington State was the first to get back, and they said, well, You have a slot. And uh, I had the paper signed before. Um, seeing it, and I was like, oh, this is going to be so cool. I'm going to be going to the mountains and skiing. And uh, I remember my mom was with me, and we crossed over into Ellensburg and went across the, the bridge in Vantage. And I'm like, uh, what did I sign up for? <laughs> and I always wonder about that. Like people who say they're coming yeah. to Pullman, they're like, you think Washington, but it's so different depending on where you are. And yeah, yeah. that's, yeah. Yeah. So. It, it was cold and everything, and Allison was my tour guide. Um, that's adorable. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, we're fun. in the same, we have the same PI, so we're studying. That's why our studies were so similar, actually. A lot of yeah. Yeah. Uh, food chemistry. So you were the tour guide. Oh, yes, yeah. Well, so I started a semester before Kenny did. Um, so I, we were in the same lab, and I was one of the many people assigned to show Kenny around when, you know, you come and you visit the campus and you see, you know, go to a class and... Yeah, so that's when we met, actually. So his very first trip to Pullman. Yeah, it was first I was sitting in the back with you and Beata, who was another, like, our our lab manager at the time. And, um, yeah, sitting in sensory, I think. But it was cold. Like, I wasn't dressed for this. Like, I remember wearing just, like, a T-shirt and a Gore-Tex jacket and it was freezing um but then in the middle of like 2 2 p.m it was like 65 and 70. i'm like what is going on here like um yeah and and i remember we were trying to figure out like how do we the trip back because we we flew into seattle drove across the state then drove back and i remember everybody was like you need to leave and they're and I was like, no, it's we have four hours. It's two o'clock, and they're like, no, 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 you need to leave because of the pass. And that was the first time me hearing pass and snow. And we're driving like this Toyota Corolla, which is so funny, and because I drove a Toyota Corolla. And, but yeah, anyways, like we made it. We made Thanks it to the airport. Yeah, we made it. Anyway, my tangent. You see where my my, my brain goes. So once you had met and were together in school, tell me about kind of your education experiences and about obviously getting to know each other. Yeah, I, what, what I liked about our program was it was food science, not necessarily just uh, not v &E, which has its pros and cons. So we did a lot of uh, classwork that was a little bit broader. So um, like any sort of hard science that you apply to food, like food chemistry, food microbiology, food processing. Um, but then also wine microbiology and wine chemistry and um, our dissertations were focused on wine and so a lot of the you know outside of classwork the things we were doing were focused on wine but as graduate students we were also assigned other sort of extension work to help pay the bills for the university and provide that service for the community and so I, we got to work on a lot of different projects like Apple. I was involved in the focus groups that named the Cosmic Crisp apples. That was pretty cool. And um, like also a project about salmon feed and um, how it manifests in terms of the flavor and the taste of the fish. Um, 
Caviar. Caviar. Got to help make a caviar lexicon so that people could um, use it as a tool to evaluate the quality of, lex of the caviar as it was um, being aged or sold. And um, I remember one at one point we had Kenny's sparkling wine sensory panel and the caviar panel on the same day. And I was telling my parents about this, and they're like, wow, your life is hard. And I was like, I feel so lucky. It was a pretty cool experience. It was awesome. Yeah, we went 9 a.m. training caviar, took a break, because some of the panelists that we were training for my sparkling panel were on the caviar. And at 11, we started the sparkling panel uh, lexicon development. And so, yeah, it was a... Uh, it was a fun time because once you open the, we had the stoppers, but we knew once we opened them, because our next training, like if we had it on Thursday, our next training was on Tuesday, well, we had to take them home. We had a lot of mimosas, a lot of, we had a lot a lot of, of drinking of sparkling wine on the weekends. Yeah. But um, yeah, that was cool. So I went in being like, I definitely want to go into the wine industry and I came out thinking, actually, I could use these tools on any sort of product or service. And so that actually that's kind of what happened with our corporate jobs, we took jobs in different industries, first food and kind of moving around, always using the same skill set um, and always in the back of our mind, like wanting to do something, do this wine passion. Um, and that's when we well, we still have our day jobs and now we're making Arabilis more and more of a forefront and hopefully in the next few years we'll be able to transition probably Kenny first and then myself. Yeah, I mean, where we started in grad school was like, we want to be a winemaking, but seeing all these things, it started opening up a lot of the doors of, as far as what we could apply our degree to, and that, hence why we still have our day jobs. Like, it's very rewarding and enjoyable and humbling in a sense that, you know, you're talking to customers um, within the categories that we're in. But yeah, like, it was always in the back of our mind, and same with when I entered grad school, I was given two options by our PI, Car Carolyn Ross, and it was like, you could come up with your research, like agenda or topic, or I have one, and I'll let you know, like, if you don't want to, if you don't have anything, I'll tell you this other one. And so I, right off the bat, said, I want to study sparkling wine. She asked why. I'm like, well, there's most of, there's no domestic research right now. It's all in Spain and Italy. and no one's focused on sugar. So that's why, you know, within food science, we're looking at food chemistry. And um, my interest in sugar was the two critical points in sparkling winemaking are, and traditional method is tirage and dosage. Um, you know, you're impacting the mouthfeel and you're impacting the final quality with the sugar. Um, little did I know it was, Sparkling is very, very complex. Um, it's super technical. Uh, thankfully, we had a really good partnership with St. Michelle to help us with the research endeavor. So um, we were making the wines. You know, I was out there at, in January pulling wine out of a 300,000 gallon tank, and it was minus four on the crush pad, getting ready for Tarage and um, running disgorgement trials on their. Perrier line. It was, I can't, I still can't believe that Caleb has since passed, um, who I was working with, but uh, I can't believe they let me, a student, run their equipment, like without, I mean, they were like, we'll show you once and then 
it's all it's yours like they they were super supportive like funding it and giving us the protocols on the recipes and such but i was like kind of responsibility yeah it was a lot of responsibility yeah. a lot of accountability very very very, very expensive say kenny got to start with uh base wine for some of his project and the first chapter yeah and i also did that i had wine donated that i kind of adulterated to make my treatments um for one of my chapters but for another chapter i was starting with grapes and that was a huge i hope that was the first time i have ever made wine um and it was on a research scale so i had these like 100 liter ferments you know a whole bunch of them so that i could systematically change things and but the start of that was going to pick up the grapes and my like i can't let believe they let me do this thing was i was able to rent a truck from school and like and a trailer from my professor and actually drive the two tons of grapes back and um i felt like i grew a lot <laughs> that trip yeah yeah kenny was riding shotgun we were not yet dating no he was my helper so it was yeah well the the funny thing was we got back and i think we started processing that night wasn't it yeah and there was a half ton of grapes left over and there are these bonner the blue fermenter bins and we had a lid on one of them and i was like oh yeah like this is perfect like we could ferment and so we had a friend of ours uh taylor oswald and he's like we should do 100 percent whole cluster pigeage just get get a ferment going the next day because it was sit, sitting you know crossing from prosser to pullman it was hot mm -hmm. and so like those things were probably already fermenting um and the next morning they started fermenting and one of our professors came in and was like kenny or who who started this fermentation and i was like yeah that was me and he's like those are my grapes and i was like no one told me anything that those were your grapes. Like we just assumed because they were was, my grapes. Yeah, they were Allison's grapes. I had like calculated, you know, how many I needed to get the volume I needed for each of my treatments, and there was there was just extra. But it would have it would have been nice for you for him to have been able to use these extras. But we had decided to make some additional research wine. <laughs> which it was great research wine. Yeah. Like month later, that stuff was tasting like because it was sitting on skins for like a month and extended mass maceration on it and it was just like ink black and yeah we were tasting it it was it was so good so yeah we got into some shenanigans a little bit your grad students i mean what are, what are you supposed to do with that <laughs> yeah how how did the the sort of the study of wine and winemaking compared to what maybe what you expected uh was it similar was it was it different like what 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 was the the reality versus what you expected i think for when we before we started or maybe i it was just like i need to do a harvest because what we're seeing in school i mean it's research we're pushing the guardrails beyond what you're normally intentionally making intentionally. bad wine and stuff like that yeah, yeah. i mean so some of our wines were pretty good, but like, yeah, some of them were pretty bad. Like we were doing that on purpose to see where the limits were, mm -hmm. which I think was a great exercise because you start noticing those indicators early. But before we started, I was like, no, I, I need to do full scale harvest. And so my first harvest uh, was in Washington and it was 150 tons, me and another, the assistant winemaker, and that was heavy. That was a heavy harvest. Um, 
So yeah, the next one dialed that back and did 40 tons with uh, another winery in Washington. And, but I was in a lab, so it was a wine chemistry lab. So it was a different angle, it was like on the client side. Um, but seeing all the like necessary wine chemistry, like how are they using it, you know. At what points? At what points? Like what are kind of the numbers that you're seeing for different types of wines and. Yeah, yeah. and what are the recommendations? Like, okay, yeah, you pick Zinfandel at 28 bricks you need to water that back. Like, I'm sorry, like, and, or are you making port? Like, I don't know what your intentions are. So it was nice to see that at that side as well, but it was very different from the research. Yeah, I had not, I had no expectations going. I didn't know what to expect and I didn't know how it was gonna relate to like commercial winemaking. And in, in my sense, like I've actually never worked a harvest for another brand. And Joe's, I've just been kind of living vicariously through Kenny in terms of his experience. He's definitely our like head winemaker and I do more of the business side for our brand. But when, when I was, I might, I might make a rosé this year. Um, but yeah, when, so when I was making my research wines, it was like all very much, you know, small scale and um, yeah, I think that I probably, there's probably a huge amount that you have learned because you've worked for other wineries and different scales that I like, just have watched, you know, so that's very important. I think that seeing Washington and Oregon comparisons, because uh, we've, I mean, making wine here, but also making some wine for Bjornsson as well and some other clients, it's like Washington's doing so much different, like Rhone, Italian, Bordeaux, Burgundy, if they're doing, I mean, Charles Smith planted all that Pinot. It's like, they're trying to do it. Like, and there's sparkling there as well, like Treveri and Saint Michel, obviously. And then seeing Oregon, it's like very different styles and um, more connection to the land and um, that realm. So, yeah, and different scales. So as your sort of time at Washington State was ending, tell me about where you each were at uh, in terms of what you were thinking next and, and sort of, if you were thinking about doing it together at that point. Oh yeah, we were definitely thinking about doing it together. So we were already married at this point or we were serious. Um, we actually wrote a business plan for this like, you know, gold star business plan for a winery, like as if we had unlimited money. Um, while we were living, we were still living in New Jersey at the time and this was like 2016 or 2017. And so we, like this has always been a shared goal of ours from, you know, way before we actually started to make it a reality. Um, so what, what kind of was the tipping point was our, we were leasing a condo in, in the Seattle area and our lease was up and the, the landlord was gonna move back in and we were like, do we wanna move somewhere else here? Do we wanna like actually make this happen and be close to the grapes that we want and the kind of the wine community that we wanna be part of? And so that's when we decided to make the, like kind of really scale up and make the leap. We had taken job. I mean, to get to New Jersey, we took jobs um, that were bringing us further, further east and further, further away from what we really wanted to do and um, love New Jersey. And we have some of our closest friends there. And at that time of our life, it was great because like you could take a train to Midtown and we had great restaurants, great wine access. Like, um, but every harvest, my buddies would text me and be like, yeah, I wish you're here. I'm like, yeah, thanks. Like, man, love you too. And, um, yeah, I just sort of got the fire going. I mean, I think the business plan definitely got the fire. We knew that it was there. We just, it was sleeping on us for, or we were sleeping on it for a while. And 
but yeah, it was nice to take that leap. Before we talk about the leap, I'm curious just a little bit about your day jobs. What, what have you been doing in the non-wine realm since, since you graduated? Yeah, so I was mentioning like this, the skills we learned at school were really translatable to all these other industries. So what we learned was a lot about you know, the research method and um, scientific method and um, assessing like how to make a product better. Like how does someone perceive a product? How do they interact with it? How can we make it better for them? And the, how we can make it better for them can either be working with you know, uh, product developers in the food industry or engineers in the tech industry or designers in the tech industry or um, like, yeah, hardware. So we've worked in all these different industries since, always kind of with the same, sitting in the same place within these mostly really big companies um, where we're kind of sitting in, in research and development and innovation. working kind of in innovation, working kind of between the marketing and product folks and the people who are making the product and trying to like translate that consumer need or that like gap that we can fill for someone and how to, how we might be able to make that better. Yeah, I mean, it, we've also at the core and which is why I was mentioning like the humbling, you know, we're, em we're empathizing with the user, the customer, the consumer, whatever word you, you term it in the industry that we're working in um, to understand the root of their problem, like Allison was mentioning, and then develop a solution for that need. Uh, and I, the first one I was working for Big Alcohol, uh, Beam Suntory, Allison was doing baby food. That was a and, cool matchup. Yeah, yeah, it was like, <laughs> so the juxtaposition there really, really was uh, intriguing, I guess. But yeah, and then big snack, big food, and then pulling back into device and tech. So yeah, it's it's been a wild ride. But seeing all of those and the scale at which how the user is leveraging the product to, within their routine, whether it's, you know, the package ergonomics of a water bottle, like how you're holding it, to the accessibility, like uh, I, my Yeti container, like it's, I look at it, Allison and I were talking about this in the car, and it's like, it's not a really accessible product because you need two hands. So imagine somebody with one hand, or if they're driving, like you don't want to see. It doesn't fit in the cup holder. Like there's a lot of, a lot of these things that like we're noticing that, you know, could make it better for what we want to use it for. I mean, for someone else, it might be perfect. Like it's huge volume, you know, it's really durable. So like it's who are you designing for and what is their need in that moment? So tell me about making the leap then in, in, into this project. Um, what, why, why here? Why did you decide to come to Oregon? It was the fruit here. So we were had our eyes in the gorge. I mean, we got married there and the beauty there. Um, we knew some of the sites with Celilo being so high elevation, south facing, Old Vine, Old Wente um, for Chardonnay, and also the potential of the Hood River Valley. The Hood River Valley is dominated by like pear cherries, so it was in the expense of it, it's really high there. And we were thinking like, do we wanna, eventually we wanna find land here. We realized really quickly, like it's a small community, really good wines that are coming out of there from the, you know, what vineyards are there. And that was one reason why we were drawn to it in like the actually potential. is the potential, yeah, is a really growing, like a lot of growth opportunity. Um, but in the end, it was like we wanted a little bit more um, 
support. And that's like exactly what we got when we landed here, basically. Like our one of my favorite stories to tell is when we're one of uh, one harvest, we got down here and uh, the, the press broke. And the night before, Kenny was trying it out and it just like the, the vacuum, the vacuum broke. Little. And yeah. so he's like, we're kind of new to this community. He's cold calling people. You know, how do I solve this problem? I like the pick is tomorrow and I can't change that. And um, people stepped up like no questions asked, like really embraced us. And it was that was just like one of the many times where I've been like to myself. Yeah, this was a good spot to be. Yeah, 100 percent. Yeah, the people, the people here, I the, that yeah, not only the fruit, it's definitely the people. Like, because when I when that happened, it it and that was just like one of the moments. But even before then, calling people and they're like, oh well, yeah, we don't have this, but call these three and they they'll help you out. Um, so it's just like a constant chain of telephone, but cold calling and yeah, but the press one, I was just. Yeah, very emotional on that because it was Tama and John Gershaw that I called, called among some other people, but they were like within 30 minutes, bring the fruit here. Um, and I just couldn't believe it. So, yeah. Yeah. That's huge. yeah. So what was the plan for, for the brand when you got here? What, where, where, what were you thinking and how did you start? Started with Pinot. I mean, we figured you're we're in Oregon, have to make a Pinot, Willamette Valley. Um, like a lot of our family is not from, a, not a lot of my family, and, but friends too, aren't from around here. When they hear Oregon and Willamette Valley, they know Pinot. And so that's what we, we made for strategically. Did that, did that again for you know, a couple years. 20, we decided to scale, and that's when we started making our sparkling wine. Um, a lot of our fruit you know, came off and that's when we were like, okay, we got to start now because and get stuff going to start loading up the cellar with the sparkling wine, which we haven't even released yet. Um, I was thinking of disgorging some for you guys, but yeah, like that was the critical moment. And then 21, we didn't make any red wine. We actually just started focusing more on Chardonnay, sparkling wine, 22, we did some red wine from Sojo again. Um, so yeah, like we were really conscious on the vineyard sites that we were doing and the region that we were like looking for is like, okay, cooler, east facing, north facing even. Uh, is it in the shadow in the afternoon? Like for sparkling wine, even for Chardonnay. So it's not feeling the heat pressure, as you know, like 20 and 21, like we had some hot, hot spells. Um, fruit quality was great in those years though. So we've made, we've started to over several years, like make more and more of the sparkling wine and less and less of the still wine. And so what we have available is still, still wine and it will continue to be a big part of our sales until uh, for a few years yet, but we'll be starting to release our sparkling wines next year and there'll be more and more of them and fewer and fewer still wines. So we're kind of approaching this inflection point that we've been excited about for so long um, to really be, able, be sparkling forward and leverage Kenny's experience and kind of our excitement over that niche um, of the industry. 
I mean, the focus was emulating the grower champagnes in that model. You know, it, a lot of people are doing it now. Um, you have Corollary, Lytle Barnett, and they're focusing on sparkling, and which is amazing. I mean, the quality is there, and Corollary's planting for sparkling only for the first you know time, like instead you know using some of the vineyards that have been planted for still, like so. That was our strategic vision, long-term vision is to emulate the grower, which Arabilis is Latin for arable, farmable land. It's aspirational. You know, we do want, hope to someday farm a site ourselves, um, small scale, I mean, but we'll get there. Mm -hmm. We'll get there. Let's talk about struggling first, since clearly that's, that's the goal. So tell me about your kind of impressions of Oregon sparkling wine and of where you sort of thought you would fit into that. Yeah, um, quality, there's so much potential and the quality's here. The, I mean, the provenance is here from the vineyard sites. I think we don't, there's a lot that's still unknown. Um, a lot of areas that I think would be very intriguing. I think there's been a lot of rumblings on certain areas like up near Forest Grove, the banks and like Tualatin and, and such, it's cooler. I mean, even the coast range, like there's just being planted in the foot. I mean, we have the, the foothills planted, but what about further past that? I mean, Eola is great because of the cool air, but yeah, the, the quality of Oregon sparkling wine is, is here and it's here to stay for sure. Um, I mean, the biggest proponent of that was Argyle, like Roland, Andrew Davis, starting Radiant. Like there are the the guys that s started it and kicked off this like movement that really s initiate a lot of the experimentation. So like our first sparkling wine that we made, there were two, 2020. We did one with Andrew and then one by ourselves. And the one that we made was all native, no non-filter, no, no cold stabilization. Um, and, you know, that's the one that we've been tasting a lot of. And the one with Andrew is like very different. So in they're completely different blends too. And how we made the wines as well. So like Andrew's is heavier shard. The one that we made is more Pinot. So, and then it just started spurring all these other ideas like that we had. Um, well, to your point about it being like the more like a really technical type of wine to be making, you have like all of the decisions that you would make going into making a still wine, plus these extra, this whole extra life of the product where you're like, you have all these levers. And so I think that is really exciting. And you see people making a lot of different decisions across the valley and a lot of really good wines and a lot of people who are experimenting and figuring out what works for us and like what's gonna be distinct for Oregon sparkling wine. Yeah, yeah. Still like, still coming to fruition. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're making two wines. Let's talk about Chardonnay then as well. Obviously Chardonnay is uh, on, quite on the upswing here in Oregon. Tell me about your interest in that. And again, sort of same question, where do you see Oregon Chardonnay right now and what's, what's your piece of it? We love Chardonnay. It's yeah. like whenever somebody asks us at a tasting, what's your favorite wine right now? We're always like, we usually actually pick different Chardonnays that we make, but um, 
yeah, we tend to go towards them more so than the Pinots these days. Um, yeah, we have two new Chardonnays coming out this fall. That'll be our fall release, and we're really excited about that. Um, we tend to, yeah, go ahead. I mean, I think the, there's just, there's so, it's a winemaker's grape, like, and that's what they've always said. And, and we made, our first shard was Wenty, and that was, like I said, I don't even know if my memory was Wenty shard, I don't know, but like, that to me was, it holds its acid really well. Um, and longer, you know, later ripening than Deshaun. I mean, we had the clone conversation endlessly with a lot of people, so like, I think that building that complexity, like even within the wines, like if you can do that, that would be amazing. So like, yeah, we, the Chardonnays are very different that we've made in tw 21, 20, like high elevation, volcanic versus like marine sedimentary. So showing that juxtaposition, you get very different wines. Um, old vines, young vines. Old vine, young vine, yeah. Much oak, yeah. But the theme throughout ours tends to be a little bit more, a little bit more acid forward. Acid forward, yeah, because I mean, we're sparkling winemakers. Like there's acid forward, it's mineral, it's salty. It's got this like elegance and like, so those are what we're drawn to. And I mean, there are some California shards that I love, like far west cinema coast, like, and they're, they push to that style too, versus like, you know, the valley floor stuff um and i think that's where we've been tending to i think like for chardonnay here like again we, the stat we were talking to jessica recently and it was like jessica cartel um chardonnay only makes like two percent of the plantings in the valley back in the what was it 80s when they started ripping stuff up because it wasn't ripening i mean chardonnay was up there at like what 50 45 percent i don't know what it was, but it was high. So it's like, we had it at a time. Imagine if we had 40% Chardonnay now, like we wouldn't be having these conversations. Like, do you have more Chard? Do you have more Chard? Like even- like Trying to find a Chard dealer. Yeah. You're like, do you have a connection? <laughs> like constantly asking around. Yeah. Yeah. Are I mean, looking like years down the road, people who are planting now and like trying to get your name on some of those rows. I mean, that's what's like this thought has run through my mind around like, do we just do an estate of Chardonnay? Um, like, ex, ex Nova, ex Omni, they've, they've done that. It's like, that could be pretty cool. Like, just focus Blanc de Blanc. Like, and I don't know. Like, so it's mad scientists, and there's still a lot of people and like styles that we resonate to, like Ken and Seth and Grant. I don't, and, Sasha and Raj, like those are the big big names, obviously, but like the styles are super fresh and quenching. Like I love the word quenching. Yeah. Like and that that's you know okay. when we're seeking shard, like that's what we're looking for is quenching. Yeah, I'm gonna say even though I know you hate that I say this, but it's like I feel like it's the Gatorade of wines. It's like <laughs> so refreshing and like so pleasant and quenching that you're just like, <laughs> yes, that's what I wanted. Joggable Chardonnay, I like it. <laughs> yes. Tell me about starting the business. Obviously, you had a you had a you had a plan, you had an idea in mind. Tell me about actually getting here, coming up with the name, coming up with the logo, coming up with all of the kind of the the basics of, of the brand. Yeah, 
that was a, just so, such a learning curve. And we had a lot, a lot of good resources. Like we really leaned on the SBA. There was a, uh, a mentorship program of like retired executives that we worked with and were assigned a mentor and that helped us to kind of get connected with the right people and uh, a lot of like reading and listening to webinars about small business, like legal, legal basics for a small business or tax basics for a small business. And um, so that was like step one. And then we decided early on that we, like branding was really important to us. And so we wanted to like have a partner in that. So we found a, actually a young couple who um, had just started somewhat recently their own graphic design firm. And so we worked with them to help with the the brand mark and um, and the labels. We wanted our brand to be like a, a premier, have this like, and that's our goal, like a premier grower producer, like that is our North Star and evoke a feeling of a place. And, you know, as we were ideating a lot of ideas and, um, there were some that you know we we could pull out the brand book and show show some that we were like yeah no that's not not what we want and or what we were feeling and so for us when we saw Rabulous and you know and this is kind of like within our product research around like and the font type and the spacing the color choice like it just hit um, and that's that that was for us like a big win um, and where we wanted to go. Obviously, you talked earlier about selling wine and you're gonna have, have more to sell soon when your sparkling hits, but tell me about selling wine and about finding finding the market and, and figuring out, again, kind of your place in it. We're still figuring it out, yeah. <laughs> um, I took sort of a, an approach this year, which was let's like do everything we can and see what sticks and what like, you know, where the best ROI is. And we kind of, we do a lot of events and pop-ups and, um, We've done some private tastings also, and so trying to see like which of these things we enjoy most and which ones convert the most, and um, also with like with the resources we have. So we have day jobs still, and so that's a constraint. And um, we share space with other until recently with a lot of other wineries, um, and so that's a constraint. Um, and so yeah, we're looking forward to the next year and having having this space and doing more with that and also um, yeah, revisiting the events that have worked well for us and potentially even like engaging with some somebody to help us with marketing, and, uh, which is really, we haven't spent any money on that yet, which is like, we know is a huge opportunity area. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just been word of mouth and you know, looking for our customers kind of like bootstrapping it together. And so, yeah, I mean, like in going back to where we wanted to be is like, we wanted, we were thinking like direct to consumer. We were gonna be a hundred percent direct to consumer. And we found out really quickly we were at that list ended pretty quick, like well, fast. Nobody knows about you yet. Yeah. It's hard. So like, that's the challenge. <laughs> so yeah, we, um, but it's been, actually it's been really, like affirming lately we've been going to events where people are like oh i've heard of you or like you know somebody mentioned this to me and and so that's been encouraging and i think it's kind of the snowball effect where like at first those like cycles feel really small and like you're not really making a lot of progress and then at some point it starts to feel like 
okay, now people maybe know of us, or now it's a little bit easier to make those recurrent sales and um, convince people to, you know, sign up for the wine club, like things that if we, if we, uh, yeah, when we first started, we just, it was a lot of trial and error. It's something that surprised us. I mean, there's been some events I'm like, I go in thinking, man, this is going to be such a bear. And then it, it's like, wow, you know, and you start making those connections. I think that's been the per the thing that we've done really well is probably I go too far on talking with some, some people about like <laughs> the story and all the grapes and super technical, but some customers like love that. And, and you really don't know who is going to like what level of information until you start talking to them. And yeah. so, yeah. I was judging an event by its cover that I shouldn't have, probably. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So our next, actually, this weekend we're doing Nescoin, uh, which is the first time we'll be doing that, which is we're interested to see how that will go. And um, next week we're going to be at the Oregon Garden. They have a like music on the lawn series. And so we'll serve probably just our Chardonnay by the glass, um, maybe Pinot by the glass. And so we're starting to go back like we had done an event at the Oregon Garden before and it was a successful event. So kind of finding these things that we like doing and doing more of them. There's so much here that not, not many people know about, like the Oregon Garden. Like when we first pulled in, I'm like, what is this place? Like nobody knows about it, but it's just such a gem of a botanical garden. And yeah, I mean, that's where I see like a future here and why, and again, another reason why we chose Oregon is like, it's sort of untapped still on a lot of things. And Tell me about having a wine that you've made with your names on it and, and presenting it to people at these kinds of events. What's, what's the, what's it feel like and how, how has that gone so far? It's really cool. It's yeah. really cool to be able to say like, I made this and this is like, this is what we did to make it and like kind of convey what went into it. And it's like sharing a little bit of your, like, I don't know, I feel a lot of pride in it. And I'm not even the head winemaker. No, I, mean, <laughs> so I feel like it's cool. Yeah. I mean, we've worked so hard to do it. Like, yeah, that's just the wine piece. But even just like the back end, like Allison built the website. We, you know, the, so to see people use it and see the analytics behind it, you're like, we just got conversion. Like, yeah, or to get feedback like, oh, we want to make our website like yours. I'm like, okay, thank you. Yeah, you know, like, like little things. Yeah, I mean, it's, huh. I think we didn't know until we started doing it. And like having that response, positive response, it's, you know, very. It's motivating. Yeah. It keeps you going. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we like making the wine for the sake of making it. And we're like, it's fun art, science, you know, yeah. but like actually sharing it with someone is like, that's yeah. the icing on the cake. That's why you do it. Yeah. Tell me about the, the sort of the winemaking style that you've adopted. And I'm, and I'm also curious coming from the technical backgrounds that you have, how much of it has veered from sort of the textbook winemaking. Mm, yeah. I mean, I think we have, the nice thing here in owning the brand and is we have freedom. Um, we're driven by some wineries that like we really enjoy and like their value system. And so we, we resonate with a lot of those values. And so like for us, it's, it's looking for freshness, you know, the quenching ability to that and, you know, respecting the site. So like, 
we wanted to convey, you know, the as much of the, the, that place as we can. Um, I think for where we want to go, like in the traditional method sense, is in sparkling is we we have a lot of ideas like that are still cooking and not many. I mean, we've put them in bottle and um, there's a lot of potential. Like we made six base wines this year and I don't know. I think there's a, a mad scientist brain around my end. Like, but it's, it's elegance and purity and like we want to be on that stage with the, the big boys and girls on that, that realm. Like, um, so I, I hope we, we can get there in a sense. I don't know if I answered that well. But. Was it about science or about what was the technical and the science? The technical. Oh, but, I can speak to the technical bit. Well, we're not like, dogmatic. Like you definitely do trials. Like you're yeah. like, like we'll try different yeasts and see how it, like you really, and you do notice like from barrel to barrel, like this one's foaming more, this one smells more this way or that way. And so like those, I think that kind of research approach definitely carries over into yeah. things I've seen you do and like our strategy um, as far as what wines we're making. Yeah. yeah. I've, over the course of the year, I've just tried not to do too much to the wine. Um, and I like I have some future experimental ideas, like even with the Chardonnay this year, like, you know, let's go let's go back to extended elevage, you know, no no batonage either. Like let's let's see what that does. Um I mean people are doing it now, but like I wanna do it. And um like we were we were tasting some wine and it was like we just put it to barrel and people were tasting through and they're like, wow, this, you know, this is a really young wine. I'm like, yeah, it's only been a barrel for a month. Like, how do you even know where it's going? And you're already putting together blends. Like it was hard for me to even think so. Just like, let it, just let it sit. So. Tell me about, tell me about vineyard sites. You obviously mentioned earlier, you had some ideas in mind, cool sites, northern sites. Um, tell me about finding the sites you found so far and um, and sort of building the relationships with the growers you have so far. All cold calling. I mean, it's all been me just knocking on doors and driving up to some places and saying like, hey, I'm Kenny, I'm from Kentucky. Like, <laughs> I don't know, like. I'm new here. Yeah. I'm, I really like some Chardonnay. Like, yeah. what do you have available? They're like, nothing this year. What about in two years? Two years down the line they call back like it's um it's kind of really it's a long long game it's a long game for sure and so like there there are places with new plantings of Meunier and chard that it's like i will take it all so um we're still small fish like we're still only getting like you know a couple tons from each place and we know that farmers prefer to have like fewer, bigger clients, it's just like easier to manage. And so we try to be really good small clients, like pay on time and yeah. like, you know, be good partners. Um, so collapse picks if you can. Yeah. Like, yeah. We don't want to, I, and I want to be, so every pick I want to be there and with the, the crew if I can. So it, I think they're very surprised. I one farmer last year, he's like, are you on site for every pick? I'm like, like, 
and they like that. I mean, it's because they know that you're respecting their fruit. It's their fruit that you're making wine with. Um, but yeah, all the sites that we've got have been either, yeah, cold calling or having friends and connections that got us in. Um, and, you know, being good tenants. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, but there's, there are more that I see coming that I think would be really, really interesting to get, get involved with and keeping our name on the wait list. Obviously we talked earlier before recording about this space, brand yeah. new to you, brand new space. So tell us about winemaking before this space and about um, kind of the move into here. Yeah, so we, we have been producing at Bjornsson and that's been a great experience. They're amazing hosts and we feel lucky to have kind of started our wine journey in the Yellow Hills with them. And um, it also means you're sharing space with a lot of winemakers. So a lot of coordination that goes in, like, you know, a lot of um, shared spaces and shared equipment. And so with this space, there's just fewer people to share with. And so that's, we're excited about that because it gives us more control, more flexibility in terms of the scheduling, um, which wasn't really a huge issue before because we, so much of our wine is processed before other clients' wines come in. So um, that actually wasn't a huge problem, but we, the, the main impetus for moving over here was we invested in a lot of sparkling wine equipment, um, which will take up a, a, a big part of the square footage. And so we just, we couldn't stay, we needed more space. Um, and so that's why we started looking around and, and we ended up here and um, it'll also allow us to have, we'll have a little bit more capacity than we need for ourselves in the near term so we can help other people process their wines if they are looking for a solution for their sparkling. Um, and we, have, and we have a couple clients now that we're making sparkling for, but also like it, we needed the equipment to finish our wine. Yeah. Like I think it was getting to a point where we were making enough that doing it by hand was one, and this is also going back to our, like our schooling, like we're gonna impact the quality doing it by hand, L loss of product, like if you're not, if it's not cold, like foaming, gushing, like lot, I mean, I, I think I, there was one person who was doing some disgorgement by hand and they lost like 30%. It's like you spent all this time mm -hmm and you lost 30% of your product, like that just kills the bottom line. Like, so yeah, it's a huge upfront investment for us, but like it allows us to control the, the process as much as we can. I mean, we don't have the vineyard, but we're working with the farmers super closely and we trust them, but we're pretty darn near the end to end control yeah. now. So, which is awesome. And as far as upfront costs, like, we would have had to pay someone to use their equipment in some way um, for the riddling disgorging. Like we just, that was always kind of going to have to happen. And so we just, now we're at that point where we needed to make a choice and we decided we wanted to make the investment. Like we've been doing tirage by hand this last June. We did 500 cases in one day, like on a six spout filler, two six spout fillers. And um, I mean, that was like, I'm so impressed that, that that went as well as it did. And it was, it was cool, but like, I'm really excited. That's the last time we're going to be doing that. And we have our, you know, we're going to have a little bit more of a system in place. At that scale. We'll probably yeah. still do some by hand. Yeah. Like I did, 
one barrel tirage this year and we, we've done some like trials like that have been smaller so it's just a matter of like scaling it up but yeah like we'll probably still do some hand tirage yeah but 500 cases in a day not 500 probably not cases in a day. no <laughs> yeah. that was that was crazy when people heard we did that they're like no way i'm like yep yeah, we uh we cranked and that was we even had a compressor go down like so in the midst of all that compressor goes down and we're, we did it all like we probably would have finished it was nine to five we could have done it yeah we were going like was it six i think we were a bottle a minute a bottle a, second. a bottle a second we were at by hand so we just had we had the right crew mm -hmm. that's super important yeah yeah no, those guys have been great. And you had your Gatorade of, of wine. We did. Get, yeah. Get yeah. Yeah. Looking forward to the Chardonnay at the end of the day. We asked them. We were like, do you want to take a food break? And they're like, no, we're going. I'm like, all right. Like that answer. <laughs> like passing around peanut butter and jelly sandwiches like, yeah. to eat something. So tell me about where your, where, uh, where the brand is now mm. and where you want it to go in the next few years. What's, what is the kind of the goal for the, for the rollout the next couple of years? Yeah. So we're now focused on 95% sparkling production wise production wise with some still and most of that still is chardonnay the red wine we're making is from sojo single vineyard um and it's yeah emulating the grower model like they have their coteau champenois like we we want to do the same and just focus like do one thing one thing well um, on the sparkling front and so and no compromise on the still like and that's where I you know we want to eventually get to 2,500 maybe 3,000 cases but like intentional you know and have some experimentation in there like do we do 100% Pinot Blanc yeah we did and it's in Magnum like why not I mean so like there are those little pieces but the other side of Arabulus is our Oregon sparkling wine business, like to do custom crush or finished services for them. Like if you want to riddle, tirage, disgorge, like we have the capacity now um, to offer that. So there will be those two sides. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, like, I mean, we want to eventually have a place to plant and farm and you know do it so where that is i don't know yet yeah and how far out not quite sure <laughs> depends on how the next couple years go but we're really excited it's, um every year it's like a whole new challenge and the whole another thing that we're taking on and so now we're taking on this equipment and we're moving and um it's just yeah, like, like constant excitement <laughs> the drain doesn't drain so I got to work on that. So it's like we're three weeks out from harvest. Yeah, it's like the little things. I mean, it's called a drain. It has to, it has to drain. It's got to go somewhere. Yeah. So it does drain. It's just slow, but yeah, it, it, we're going to work on that. Well, from the, from the sort of making wine for the people slash custom crush slash facility, tell me about uh, what is the demand? Are you seeing a lot of demand for sparkling wine, that kind of sparkling wine service? And where do you sort of see that, see that part of your business going? 
we, we don't know. I mean, we're not sure. We, we needed this equipment for us, for sure. And we wanted to get the capacity that would work for us in the long run, not just for our, our production in the next couple of years, because we do plan to grow the sparkling a lot. And so that was like the foundation of the purchase. But like there is, we've been turned away when we were scoping out, like how would we finish our wines if we didn't do this? Um, it was hard. Like there's only a few options and, um, and so we do think that there are, there are other wineries that probably had the same issues as us and when we were scoping it out, and we hope that we can help them out and that we can help them make like an awesome wine that they're excited about because we also are trying to, like, this is our focus area. It's not like something we've been doing on the side, but it's kind of the main part of our production for Arabilis too. About the industry a little bit in general, you talked about kind of your, your introduction to Oregon wine and the, and the kind of the, the, the friendliness and neighborliness of it. Tell me about how you've seen Oregon wine, uh, what you've seen in Oregon wine as a part of it, and what the industry kind of looks like to you now in 2023. Um, where do I start? I feel like we're, we're still just getting, still just like getting to know people, like we've only touched the edge of the iceberg sort of thing, because we're still relatively new to the community. Um, but we've found a lot of really good friends and partners, and we have found, gravitated towards a lot of the younger winemakers who are kind of in similar positions as us, or they're maybe a couple years ahead of us. And so we're, um, we're excited about kind of that new generation and being a part of it and seeing where that goes, I think. That's the first thing that comes to mind for me in terms of community. There's a lot of organizations that were like just starting to get up in, in terms of like formal community support um, that we're just starting to get involved with. Like we just joined the Willamette Valley Wineries Association this, earlier this year, and like they are just a wealth of information and resources. And um, like until this year, just we like weren't going to budget to pay for that, and it's totally worth it. And other organizations that we haven't been kind of leveraging that I know will be really important for us and like the women in wine the conference I wasn't able to go because of a work conflict but like it's on my radar and I'm like very excited to to get more involved yeah I mean I think too it's another version of that community is that like technical tasting groups like we've form formulated some groups of people to do these tastings together and like some the motivators are like we want to do better like we want to you know improve our palates and then see what else keep a pulse on the competition right and then like also stylistically like are we does Oregon have a style like and you know it's starting to like come come into fruition so like next Monday we it's like me Lundine Marcus Goodfellow Andrew Davis David Cho um, Melamire, like there's a few of us like all getting together, Bobby on that, like, so I think those are forming and like you see it with the, the Oregon Chardonnay celebration, IPNC that just happened, like, so with Sparkling, it's start, I think we're starting to make, get this conversation going around like where we want to take it and like that future for formalizing it. Talk a little bit about the future then. Let's start with sparkling specifically. Uh, obviously, uh, it's been kind of a buzz around Oregon and it's just starting to sort of see the impacts of it now. Where do you see Oregon sparkling over the next, say, decade? Where, where, where is that part of the industry headed? I mean, I think it's going to be a big component. Like, I don't know what the percentage is here. I mean, you see it, like, 
the one the producers I mentioned, like Dan and Jean with Corollary, Andy Lytle, like those that are focusing on sparkling only. And there's going to be more. Like, why does champagne have to have, or they have 2,500 champagne houses in this tiny area? So, like, Oregon is bigger than that, and there's a lot of potential there. And I think um, we are finding the sites now that, okay, yeah, Pinot doesn't ripen here. Don't rip it up. Like, keep that, and we can use it for sparkling. Like. So there's a lot of potential in, in that realm that I see and even just like quality um, will only get better. So, and I'm speaking on the traditional front, like not Petnat or Charmat or direct force carb. Like we believe in the traditional method style. So I think that's where like there's a lot of open runway there. But on a larger scale, Oregon wine, kind of in general, uh, where is the industry headed? I mean, it's double. I mean, it's year over year growing. Um, it's not slowing down. Like there, there's a reason why people are interested in this area. Um, and it, you know, Pinot's been the driving force. Chardonnay's right behind it, and we sparkling's just right there in tow. And so. Um, Oregon to us is just, it's hot right now. Like, and we don't, we hope it doesn't slow down. Yeah, I think, and we hope we can find and buy some land before it's too expensive because it, it will just like grow as a, as a popular place to grow and sell wine. And yeah. um, we're already seeing, yeah, a lot of people moving here from other areas. And I think it's gonna grow. It's exciting and yeah. yeah. There's a lot of areas that are still yet untapped, I think. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're starting to you see something. Like, I mean, the, yeah. P places that are untapped and then like one climactically, like what are better suited? Yeah, and climactically, like people planting different bridles, like maybe also because of maybe some fatigue with, you know, their traditional bridles here, but also, maybe because it's now becoming more and more suitable for other varietals that before weren't really wasn't really perfect for, and so I think we might see some expansion of the offerings here. Yeah, I mean that's a whole other realm. Like Saw Blanc, Chenin Blanc, like those have been, or Gamay, like Cab Franc. Like you, you heard them being discussed, and people plant them in the like. Oh, we just have like these two rows of. Cab Franc, like, that's cool, but also just like a realm of, like, there could be more, so. Tell me about uh, sort of uh, greatest accomplishment so far for the two of you, for either, either individually or together. What are you proudest of to this point in your career? I'm proud that we're still in business. Yeah. Like, that we've gotten, like, it's just there's such a long, like, upward journey before you really, like, we knew this when we decided to get into the wine industry that like we were expecting to, to really have to uh, be prepared to continue to invest in it year over year for the start. And I'm just like, I'm proud of us for sticking with it even though it's been hard and even though we're still, it means we're still both working full-time jobs and there's um, a lot of really long days. But I think 
I'm just proud that we're like we made it to this point and that we have all these exciting things kind of like right on the horizon. And I can't even imagine what we're going to be saying in five years, you know, or 10 years. And I'm excited that we're going to have this interview to look back on and be like, okay, that's where we were at that point, you know. So, what about you? Me, I, I was just going to say I agree wholeheartedly with that. Like, I, you asked us five years ago when we were just starting, like, no, we didn't know. Like, I, I until we went to the, our trip on Champagne. I wouldn't have expected us to take the leap even just to buy the sparkling equipment. Like, that was, I mean, it's not from a proud, it's like, oh, oh man, what are we, holy cow, what are we doing? Keeps you up at night sort it of thing. Keeps us up at night, but at the same time, like, I'm proud that we did that. Like, and our keep investing in ourselves and double downing on ourselves in, in this, this realm. Um, yeah, we are, I think, a very functional teeter-totter. When one of us is feeling really positive and the other person is not, we're kind of able to help each other up. <laughs> um, and it's always like one or the other, you know, we're, we're it's we very, it's, I don't think we've ever both been really down at the same time. And so that's been important that we kind of like can help help each other out and like keep the positivity going. I mean, it's, it's, it's a fun industry to be a part of, like, and I'm proud that there's this element of our lives. Like, yeah, the day job is a day job. And yeah, it's, it, it pays the bills, it keeps the lights on, it keeps this, the fuel in the gas tank with this. But then when, we, when the five o'clock hour hits, it's like, yeah, we get to go check Verasion. Like, yeah. and not many people get to say that they, get, they can do that. And I'm, I'm grateful for that. Yeah. Anytime when I'm like stressed about the finances or compliance or whatever the challenge of the day is, I'm like, what if we weren't doing this? And I just like, I'm certain that we should be doing this. So, yeah. Fantastic. Uh, it's all the questions that I have for the two of you. Uh, anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything that we didn't cover today that you'd like to cover? I just want to say thank you. Like what you guys are doing and putting together is really rewarding. Like sitting down and watching and learning, like, through listening is really, really impactful. So you guys are doing a really cool thing. Yeah, well, thank, thank you. you. Thank you, and you're welcome. That's, that's great to hear. I appreciate that. Uh, thank you both so much for joining us, for sharing a new, brand new space with us and sharing your stories with us. Uh, we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Thank you. Thank right. you. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.